we want the audience to feel connected and to feel like they've experienced something really meaningful. They haven't just sat there and listened to pretty music, but they've actually been moved and been touched by by what we're doing. So I think that's kind of just always going to be the goal. This is the Institute for Music Leadership. Welcome to another episode of Create, Inspire, Lead. I'm your host, Jeff Dunn. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Laura Metcalf from The Overlook, an uptown New York City string quartet amplifying the music of black composers. This ensemble was a product of the challenges faced in 2020 and acted in response to the murder of George Floyd. The four founding musicians are all friends and colleagues in New York, but bring different backgrounds from playing chamber music to Broadway pits. The Overlook was a recipient of a Paul R. Judy Center for Innovation and Research grant from Eastman's Institute for Music Leadership. This grant supported their festival, If the Stars Align, which recently finished its second season. I chatted with Laura afterwards about the origins of the Overlook, their mission, and future. I'll let Laura introduce herself. My name is Laura Metcalf, and I am the cellist of the Overlook um, String Quartet. So uh, you're a musician in New York City, and I know that this project, uh, you know, really started to develop during the pandemic. So could you just share a little bit about what your experience was like when the pandemic first began in March 2020? Yeah, Um, you know, it was surreal. And um, like everybody else, suddenly everything was canceled. Um, I had had a very busy spring lined up of concerts and touring. Um, and when, when everything shut down, it just was, it was canceled one after another, a few things were postponed. Um, but, but basically, um, I went from being a very busy, very employed musician traveling all over to a musician with no work. Um, I went on unemployment um, with the government and I remained on unemployment for, um, you know, the better part of a year, maybe even more. I can't even remember remember now, but yeah, it was, it was shocking and surreal. And of course we all found ways to deal with it and continue on. And, and that's kind of part of the story of our quartet actually. Right. So that's certainly a huge change for you and musicians like yourself in lifestyle, being used to traveling a lot, being busy, and then suddenly being kind of holed up in your, you know, your your home, wherever that may be. How did you find that you coped with that? Um, well, for me personally, um, I uh, have a duo with my husband. He plays classical guitar. So we were lucky in that we were able to um, continue playing together, which I know most people didn't have we made, um, you know, a lot of online content. We did a lot of taped full-length concerts for concert series in our living room, all of that stuff. I did other work sort of with just creating content, um, you know, figured out how to make a recording that sounded halfway decent, as I think everybody did. Kept practicing, you know, just just tried to keep, keep my spirits up and keep making music. Um, but the Overlook was really... Um, kind of the most concrete manifestation of a direct a direct response to what the situation we were in 
and one that would not have happened had we had the shutdown not happen. So how did that idea begin to formulate? How were you connecting with those individuals and how did the Overlook really begin? Yeah, so the Overlook started um, very casually and very naturally in June of 2020. Um, Like I said, I'd had opportunities to play with my husband, but most of my colleagues and friends had not been able to play chamber music with other people or any kind of music with other people for months. And it was getting warmer and we said, let's meet up outside. Let's meet up outside in New York and just play some music together, read some some chamber music, read some string quartets, because we were all friends. We missed each other. We missed, you know, the company of other people. Um, and we just, we missed making music together. And so we sort of made a date to, to sight read some music. Um, and it was also right around the time of the murder of George Floyd. And at that time, when we were kind of planning this get together, we were like, well, we could read string quartets by like Beethoven and Mozart and Haydn, but like, there's so many, so many people that already do that. And, and we just felt like sort of responding to that moment in time that we were in and that the world was in and that our country was experiencing. Um, so we, we decided to just from the beginning, even just for reading purposes to focus on music by black composers Um, And some of the first pieces that we read together, just sort of casually outside on the street, um, were by Florence Price, Chevalier de St. George, Daniel Bernard Romain, um, you know, living composers, composers who passed away, but Black composers pretty much exclusively. We didn't get together to say, like, we're going to form an official string quartet and make it a thing. We were just like, "This, this is what feels like something natural to do right now. It was very, very organic, like I said. And when I say that it wouldn't have happened um, without the shutdown, I mean that the four of us come from kind of different backgrounds. A couple of us were kind of full-time touring chamber musicians. Some of us were full-time Broadway musicians. And, you know, our schedules in pre-COVID life would never have aligned to Um, create this kind of collaboration, but because we were all out of work and we were all home and we all live in upper Manhattan, it just was this really natural thing. We're friends, we're colleagues, and we just came together. So um, those early reading sessions were were just casual and we enjoyed it so much. It was like, it was so soul feeding to be able to get together and discover this music together. It wasn't like we were sight reading music that we'd sight read a million times at chamber music camps and, you know, worked on and studied all our lives. This is music um, that we were, that felt new to us and exciting to us and um, important. And so it just, it just sort of built from there. We started getting together more often. We created an Instagram account where we would announce where we were going to be reading that day. And we sort of developed like a little following, a little neighborhood following and people would come out to hear us wherever we were. And, and we just started kind of getting into the community. Some of our first um, real official public concerts were in our community in a, there was one in a residential courtyard. There was one outdoors at a, um, a coffee shop slash bar there was one at a historic mansion in our neighborhood. So some of our very first public concerts were for the people that had kind of like been with us since 
the beginning. So we kind of developed like this really hyper local vibe to us. And, and it's, that's the kind of vibe that we've tried to really maintain as life has returned to whatever we call normal now and sort of why we do this festival uptown for which this grant was part of the funding and um, all of that. So it's just been this really sort of organic project that has grown, but that we feel very important about maintaining the sort of identity of how we started and, and where we started. Great. Well, and I certainly want to come back to the grant in particular and, and the project that that funded. Um, my first question would be, why the Overlook? What What's the significance of that name? What does that mean to you? So there's two, there's a double meaning to the name. The first is a very literal one, which is our first location that we would get together was um, a sort of rotunda on the side of Riverside Drive overlooking Hudson River and the George Washington Bridge. Um, so it was literally, we were meeting on an overlook. But also the music that we play, you know, like I said, we sort of started by focusing on Black composers and we've sort of expanded out to um, include women composers and other composers that have sort of been overlooked by like the mm -hmm. official classical canon over the years. So um, that's very much the repertoire that we seek out and that we want to champion. So it the name refers to that as well. So it sounds like the ensemble from the get-go had clear missions, right? You had brought, you know, obviously it served a, a very practical need for you as all as musicians to get together and, and play, which is something you hadn't done in maybe a couple of months. And you discuss how the recipe was right at that time, that there were the external factors that allowed it to take place. Um, but obviously now in 2023, life is maybe a little more normal. So how does the ensemble now fit back into the lives of the four musicians now that life is maybe a little bit more what it used to be? Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely not as I mean, I wouldn't say it's harder. It's it's more complicated. Scheduling is like the main sort of challenge for us now because we have all kind of gone back. I mean, a lot of us definitely underwent changes to our professional lives um, and we do different things maybe now than we did before the pandemic. But we're all really, really busy um, and not necessarily with the same things. So. The, the biggest challenge is just finding time to get together, carving out that time to, um, you know, work on new repertoire and discover new repertoire and and do all the other things that uh, is required of building an ensemble. You know, it, it is hard, but we do all really try to prioritize it and make time for it. And what about the social mission here? You talked about it being a response to the murder of George Floyd. You have a clear aim here in the way it can impact the profession. How do you see that uh, continuing and evolving in, in 2023? Absolutely. And, and we're more committed than ever to that mission. And I think a really, really big part of upholding that mission is developing relationships with composers. Like I said, the first kind of chunk of pieces that we read were, um, you know, Florence Price, Coleridge Taylor, Coleridge Taylor Perkinson. But increasingly, we've been really nourished by playing the music of living composers and, and communicating with those composers and even playing the music for them and getting feedback um, and developing deepening relationships with those living composers. Um, one of the composers of one of the pieces we play a lot, Trevor Weston, he lives in not too far. He lives in Brooklyn and he actually attended a performance, one of our earliest performances of his work. Um, we continued to play the work so much that he rededicated his piece to us. 
Um, we're hoping to, to record it in the near future. Um, so that's just one example of these kind of relationships that we're building. Our festival is named after a piece by Leila Adu called If the Stars Align. And that's another relationship that, that's been really um, wonderful to develop with Layla. She also lives in New York City. She has attended several of our concerts where we've played that piece. You know, I think going forward, even more, if, if we can sort of find a way to do it, we want to do more commissioning. We want to just kind of deepen those relationships and help, you know, at our, at our core, all of this is about expanding the, the canon, about expanding, like when somebody who doesn't really know about chamber music thinks about string quartets, there's a handful of dead white composers that they think about, and we just think that's not right. And we feel like all of the work we're doing is to say, hey, there is so much more out there created by people that just didn't have the opportunity to become in that sort of narrow definition of what's standard. And we want to make it so that you mention these names alongside the names that everybody knows. It's interesting how this has um, organically developed from such a uh, small location, right? You talked about this being, you know, right in your community uh, and certainly community minded and, you know, following you develop on Instagram perhaps um, speaks to the power of social media these days as well. But your uh, your impact is seemingly much larger, right? You want to influence the whole field. So what are some of the the steps that you've either taken or the way that you're thinking about the future of this ensemble in terms of impacting a community to impacting the profession? Both by sort of staying true to our local roots, continuing to produce concerts in our community um, for free and bring the music to everybody, not have any sort of barrier to accessibility to the music, um, I think is one kind of piece of it. And then impacting the profession, I think, um, like I said, recording and commissioning new works is going to be kind of the fastest way to, you know, within the digital era, we if we record something and put it online and have a platform to share it, there's no limit to how wide of a reach that can have. And finding ways to have this music reach people and have people understand how great it is and how worthy it is of standing up next to these more standard pieces. So I think, you know, we're, we're brainstorming a lot of ways that we can get this music recorded, get new commissions, keep bringing more music into the world by these composers that we've come to love and respect and think have such unique and important voices, um, I think is all part of it. And also, you know, we do a lot of performing here in the city, but also we are starting to tour and take it a little bit more on the road to places that, you know, might not have any experience with anything but the most sort of narrow definition of what classical music is. Um, and I think that's sort of a natural outcropping of where we started. We really want to sort of share that with a wider community. You speak to some really important points here that I think a lot of musicians have been considering 
the last couple of years about accessibility, about who attends our performances, how do we get them there, how do we make sure it's a product that everyone can can access and appreciate. So how does that fit into all of the members' portfolio careers and um, you kind of balancing you know, perhaps the the concept of putting on a free concert in the community with also everyone's need to pay their rent and mortgage and, you know, put food on the table. How does that all work for the, the members of the quartet? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a real puzzle. All of it is a real puzzle. I think one one thing that we've discovered about the quartet is that, you know, we're all like sort of mid-career. We're not like 22 and just starting out. So we do need to get paid when we perform. Like that's actually, you know, it's not us being selfish. It's us recognizing that playing music is our job. And, you know, we we kind of like were aligned with feeling that way. Like I think, you know, a lot of young groups when they're just starting out without experience um, doing this for a long time, you know, you end up doing a lot of things for free and you end up kind of hemorrhaging a lot of your time. And it's not that we don't value the work. It's just that we literally need to make sure that everything we do is paid work. So that's where grants come in. We do fundraising. When we are offered concerts, we ask for a full fee, you know, all of these things. You know, we just we just make sure that we're able to pay ourselves for the work that we're doing. You know, like I said, playing music is all of our jobs. None of us have other jobs that pay the bills. It's This is it. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we've been really lucky with, with grants so far and, um, you know, some supporters who have helped us financially, who believe in our mission. And, you know, we kind of just piece it together to make sure that everyone's time is being compensated and valued and just kind of make it work. So let's talk a little bit about the business structure in the quartet. How do you divvy up work? Do do the four members have different responsibilities or how do you actually approach not only creating your experiences and the music and making sure that everyone can get paid? Yeah, so we um we divide the admin responsibilities be- between the members of the quartet. So like we'll have a meeting where we talked about like all the things that on our to-do list, you know, there's all sorts of things from like the sort of minutiae details of upcoming gigs, like who's going to book the rental car for this next gig and, you know, who's going to, you know, email the presenter our bio and like, you know, the little sort of day-to-day admin tasks, we'll assign those. And then there's bigger picture things like identifying and preparing grants and reaching out to other presenters for opportunities. And, you know, right now, like I said, we're really trying to pursue a recording. So figuring out all of the details that come with that type of project Um, And so we just kind of identify the things that need to get done and everybody gets sort of their couple of assignments on their to-do list. And then we sort of have at it. And then hopefully we we come back together in the next meeting, having accomplished some or all of those tasks and take it from there. Do you find that all four members of the quartet are equal partners in this in terms of the level of work and responsibility? Or do you have a structure where there's maybe one or two people that are, you know, quote unquote, the artistic directors that kind of handle more of it? No, we're we're not structured that way. I know, you know, I'm a sort of career chamber musician and I've been part of a lot of groups and I've seen different ways that that groups handle the structure because that's a great question some in some groups there's like one or maybe two people that are like the big boss and they put in a lot of time outside playing 
Um, and then therefore they make all the decisions and they may get compensated more. But then there's other groups where it's very much equal, you know, like the, the chamber orchestra in Boston, Far Cry, like they somehow managed to have their entire group be like equal contributors, which is really amazing given how large they are. I think like the more people you have, the harder it is to have, um, you know, everybody kind of sharing responsibilities. But with a quartet, it's definitely manageable. And that's de- that's definitely our model. Let's talk a little bit more about If the Stars Align, which is the project that was funded in part by the Paul R. Judy Center grant. Can you tell us a little bit about the origins, the concept behind this? Yeah, so the If the Stars Align was really just kind of a formalization of what um, we had been doing in the community, which was free concerts, mostly outdoors, not all outdoors, but mostly outdoors for the community, highlighting the repertoire that we have grown to love. And this was the second year that we did it. And what was really beautiful about the project, both in the first and the second year, was the partnerships between the venues that we played at. Because not only did we get to play for our community, but we got to play for like the community, whatever community had sort of built up around that place and that institution. So both years that we did it, the sort of centerpiece performance was at the Morris Jumel Mansion, which is a beautiful historic home in Upper Manhattan. It's like a a real architectural gem and not a lot of people know about it, but it's an absolutely beautiful and special place. And they have this gorgeous porch with like this kind of open field around it. And it's, it's actually like a really fantastic place to play concerts and we did we did a show our very first official concert was there so we've returned several times to that and we returned this year and so that was a really great partnership this year one of our concerts was in collaboration with the Washington Heights Womanist Arts Festival which was started by a friend of ours um this really wonderful sort of polyglot she's she's like a yoga teacher and a healer and um a meditation coach and a life coach and so so she started this beautiful arts festival where she celebrated the work of women um in many many different art forms so the day included a performance by us but it also included yoga class and art class and storytelling and um all sorts of things so that was a really cool way to kind of you know have our festival intersect with this festival and and it really just kind of embodied our mission of like being in our community and and serving our community and then we also this year got to perform at the united palace um that was the finale of our festival i think i wrote to you it was rescheduled twice you know these days things are so so ever-changing um but we did finally manage to do the concert and it was incredible it's this it's this really beautiful ornate historic theater um in upper manhattan and we played in the lobby in the round so we sat in the middle of the audience um and we descended this there's this like grand staircase down we descended the staircase and got right in the middle of the audience and performed a concert and it was it was so special and the acoustics were fantastic in there we didn't even need amplification and it was really i mean it's a historic landmark it's sort of the gem of our of our neighborhood and um just to be able to have our our festival finale there was really special 
Yeah. It sounds like your concerts and performances are a little unique. Uh, historians, storytellers, more speaking and interaction with the audience on the part of musicians as well. Can you describe a little bit about how for you as performers that changes the experience rather than sitting in a Broadway pit or just playing a quartet on stage? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we've always thought like from the very beginning, we've thought about, you know, the experience of coming to a concert isn't just sitting and listening to music. There's so many things to think about. Like, where you are, the setting, like, you know, what you're looking at while you're performing, what space you're in and what possible historical significance of that space, all of these things, you know, really contribute to the experience that an audience member has at a concert. And, you know, I do think that one of the challenges in classical music is to make that experience more compelling in order to keep up with the times, you know, like there's so many things that a person could do on any given day, especially in New York City, that are experiential and stimulating and all these things. And, um, you know, I do think the sort of traditional experience of like sitting quietly in a concert hall and clapping only at the end of the fourth movement, like it just doesn't really, it's not quite enough anymore. And it's not quite, to me, it's not quite visceral enough. Like I think that playing in smaller venues, playing in venues that may not be even a concert hall at all, as you mentioned, having these guest performers um, in different mediums on stage that kind of help to influence how people hear the music um, and help them listen in a different way is really important. Every single time we've had Tanya, there our, um, our meditation coach, um, at our concerts, people just are so blown away by how much it enhanced their listening experience. Um, we always say to her, like, we wish we could take her on tour with us everywhere we go. In our collaboration at Morris Jumel Mansion this year with this amazing violinist, Curtis Stewart. Curtis is an Eastman grad, and he's just been nominated for his third Grammy. He's just been named artistic director of um, American Composers Orchestra. He's just a really incredible performer, composer, everything. So in our concert that we did with him, we had him do a number of his own solo pieces. And in his pieces, he has speaking and singing, and he talks about the meaning of the pieces and why he wrote them and what significance they had to his life. And just like the way that Curtis like presents music is so much more than just standing there and playing the violin. And so we were really excited to bring that into the fold for our concerts. We got to do some, some improv with him on stage. And, you know, again, people just were so moved by that and so touched by the sort of the visceral experience of like, you're not just hearing someone play, but you're really hearing their voice, um, literally and figuratively. You make a great point about experiences, right? And I know there's even been writings, I can say this as a millennial, some of the millennial generations and, and maybe even younger are much more interested these days in experience and, and paying for that rather than paying for a commodity. So it's fascinating the way that you're really imagining that whole experience of a performance. So from this experience you've had with the Overlick for a couple of years now, what lessons have you learned? What results are you seeing? And are you, um, you know, really reimagining the future of what performing music looks like because of this quartet? Yeah, I mean, I guess the biggest takeaway from what we've experienced thus far is that, you know, when we are able to design 
many elements of our concerts when we're able to kind of be in a little bit of control of like if we have a guest artist or what type of venue or if we sit in the round or like all of these things you know the more kind of we have the scope to not just program the concert but design the experience the more it's fulfilling for us and hopefully fulfilling for the audience um, so, you know, we're not trying to be like a difficult group who says like, it has to be like this, but not just us, but I think most artists should think about, you know, what is the experience like for the audience from the minute they walk in to the minute they leave? Like, what are they experiencing? What are they seeing? What are they hearing? Like, what does it feel like to go to a concert? Because we don't want concerts to feel like this thing people do as a chore because like it's good for you to go hear chamber music. You know, we want people to come to a concert and leave feeling like I want to go to another one as soon as possible. And I think too, like the stories we're telling, the type of music that we're playing, the fact that we're telling stories by living composers. Like um, one of the pieces that we love to play is a piece called Middle Ground by Shelley Washington. It's a sort of ode to her upbringing um, in Kansas. And she actually wrote a poem about like a poem that's kind of like in the score of the piece. So we actually read the poem out loud, you know, like we really are telling personal stories at every concert. We want the audience to feel connected and to feel like they've experienced something really meaningful. They haven't just sat there and listened to pretty music, but they've actually been moved and been touched by, by what we're doing. So I think that's kind of just always going to be the goal. Well, and it certainly sounds like then for the Overlook, there's been some real change in uh, how you approach music making over the last few years. And, you know, we can tie this all back to 2020 and the things that have transpired during that time. Have you seen that permeate the profession in other ways as you, you know, the four of you continue to re-engage in some of those, you know, past employment opportunities they had prior to the pandemic? Have there been permanent changes as a result of 2020? Um, yeah. I mean, I would say yes. Um, I think people are more thoughtful. I mean, one thing, you know, for me, I'm, in addition to being a performer, I am a presenter myself and I actually run a concert series and I ran a couple of things during the pandemic is that, you know, you don't have to be in a concert hall to make music. And in fact, um, I think bringing music to different spaces and different institutions like museums and historic homes and all these things, I think it actually enhances the experience for everybody. Like it makes the art look different when you, ha when you animate it with music, it makes music sound different when you have it sort of accompanied by visuals. I think like because we had to get so creative with where we could literally where we could make music for people in the pandemic, um, that has stuck a little bit. And I think that there's a lot more sort of open-mindedness about what constitutes a concert hall and where can we present music and who can we play it music for. So I think that has definitely been a positive change. Um, you know, I think some of the big institutions have been more thoughtful with their programming and, and trying to speak to the world that we live in now. It's, it's slower, like it's, sl it's slower to change when you're talking about huge institutions versus like small operations, like our little string quartet and some of the smaller series that I run, like it's, it is easier to adapt quickly and 
change things and respond quickly to what's happening. Um, but yeah, I would say that there is a sort of slow, steady stream of change that that's happening and that has stuck around. Um, and then there's other things that have gone back to their usual frustrating <laughs> way. Sure. Yeah. So what's next for the Overlook? What are some of the future goals and plans that you share? Um, well, like I said, we, we really want to do a recording um, as soon as possible. We have a couple pieces that um, have become really kind of like special to us. Um, and some of them haven't ever been recorded yet. So I think that's going to be the next big project is just getting this down um, and, and getting it out into the world. Um, we have a number of um, collaborations that we're planning. We're going to be playing uh, piano quintets by Florence Price and Amy Beach um, on International Women's Day. So we're really excited about that. We have some outreach projects planned. Our first international date is coming up in the summer. So yeah, a lot, a lot to look forward to. We're very appreciative of, of the support um, that we received and um, it really helped us, you know, in our mission and, and we're grateful. Today's episode was produced by Kelly Judson. The music was written and produced by Stephen Bigner, Alexa Silverman, and myself. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for episodes, please contact us via our website at iml.esm.rochester.edu. If you like this episode, share it with your friends and colleagues and leave us a review on your preferred streaming platform. This podcast is a production of the Institute for Music Leadership at the Eastman School of Music. The views expressed in the podcast are the interviewees and do not represent the Eastman School of Music or the Institute for Music Leadership. From the IML, I'm Jeff Dunn. See you next time.